When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. As the fifth wife of Henry VIII, Catherine Howard's story is always told in one of two ways. Either she was sexually promiscuous and uneducated, or that she was naive and tragic. On the episode today, my guest will show us who the real Catherine Howard was. I'm Rebecca Larson, host of the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast and owner of TudorsDynasty.com. Telling the story of those who lived centuries before us is what I enjoy doing most, whether it be a show on one subject or an interview with an author or historian. I'll bring you the tales of 16th century England. Today, my guest is author and historian Gareth Russell. Gareth has written several books, including Young and Damned and Fair, The Life of Catherine Howard, Fifth Wife of Henry VIII as well as his new release, a topic that also interests many of us, The Ship of Dreams, The Sinking of the Titanic, and the End of the Edwardian Era. We'll talk about both, but be sure to stick around to the end to hear his answers to my fun questions. Before I get started today, I need to take a minute to thank Holly C. for becoming a patron since my last episode. Thank you, Holly. A full list of current patrons can be found at TudorsDynastyPodcast.com. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudors Dynasty, and click Become a Patron. For as little as $3 per month, you can show your support. Today, I want to welcome author and historian Gareth Russell to the show. Welcome to the show, Gareth. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Rebecca. I appreciate it. I think many of us Tudor fans were first introduced to you um, by your book about Catherine Howard, Young and Damned and Fair. Uh, is that the the correct uh, assumption, or did you have another Tudor book before that? I mean, I had well, I had I did a small one, sort of an illustrated introduction for Amberley, which is a UK publisher. But um, it, Catherine Howard would certainly have been. I think were my first major work. Um, I had uh, I completed my postgraduate in medieval history, and my undergraduate, sorry, my postgraduate um, thesis or dissertation was on the Queen's household in 1540 and 1541. And a professor saw it and said, you know, there might be something in this on a uh, on a biography, um, and that's sort of where it started. So yeah, I would say Catherine really was the first sort of breakout uh, thing I did. So why Catherine? Um, it's slightly strange. Um, she sort of wouldn't really let me go, actually. It was not, I mean, it, it was, she certainly was not the, the first shooter with whom I was particularly fascinated. I mean, it started um, with Anne Boleyn. 
Uh, I was on holiday when I was seven or eight years old in, in Southern Ireland, and it was it would just rain the whole time. And Anne of a Thousand Days was on Irish television. Uh, my father was a big Richard Burton fan, and that's what my my tutor love started when I watched that film with him. Um, and then sort of you know I loved to read as a child, so I read everything I I could in the tutors. And when I was about eighteen, I had this. Uh, improbable and slightly unjustified rush of confidence that I was old enough to write a book and at 18 I definitely was not but I wanted to write a book about the six uh, queens who had been executed in European history and I only ever finished the chapter on Catherine Howard which is which um, seemed odd years later that that was the only one I finished when I was doing my postgraduate and I had pitched the idea for the thesis on the Queen's household, sort of in the half century from Margaret of Anjou right the way through to Catherine Parr. And my supervisor, Dr. James Davis, said, no, actually, for a thesis, there's more benefit um, to something short, uh, to a short period that you can study. And, you know, Henry VIII, unfortunately, provided us with several queens who weren't there for very long. And Catherine's worked for me because... You could see a household staff being formed. You could see them in residence. You could see them on tour. And also because of her her downfall in 1541 and 1542, you could see what it looked like when the royal household was under pressure. So I sort of picked her her um, queenly tenure simply because it worked. Uh, and then once again, as it had when I was 18, it, it sort of took over. And I really did not expect to find anything diff- different, particularly to biographies of her that had been written before. Uh, she was sort of a framing device to look at the household staff. But in the course of that research in 2011, I realized that actually there was a lot about this this young queen that was pretty significantly misunderstood or misrepresented. And that um, I felt I had something sufficiently new to say to justify it. And um, I pitched the idea, I well, I had a, met my agent, my now agent, for the first time in 2014 and pitched the idea to her, and that's where it started. So Catherine tenaciously won me over <laughs> to, to writing about her. I'm very glad that she did. She just has such an interesting story, and you did a wonderful job telling it. I felt like you told it in a way that it hadn't been told before. Thank you very much, Rebecca. That's very kind. Thank you. One of the things that I discovered from that book was um, maybe your claim to the year that Catherine was born. Do you recall your reasoning behind why you picked 1522 as the year of her birth? Yeah, I actually, that was one of the, I set myself a very firm, um, writing is so much about discipline. I mean, and even I, Rebecca doing things like the podcast, as you know, it requires you to really have quite a firm grip on oneself in terms of how you manage your time and what you allow yourself to do and not to do. And in, and I decided to apply a little bit of that discipline with my time to my mind when writing Young and Damned and Fair and to say that if the evidence was leading me away from presuppositions that I had, then I would follow it. Um and I really, I had, I had thought for quite some time, um, as I think quite a lot of us had, uh, that fifteen twenty five was the was the most likely um, year for her date of birth. Uh, that that has been the most popular one, maybe for the last um, 
decade or so, I know Joanna Denny in her biography of Catherine, which I think was 2005, really, um, really stressed 1525 uh, and built a large amount of her arguments um, on, on Catherine's comparative youth. But when I went into the, the family wills, uh, particularly of her grandmother, Isabel, uh, and her step-grandfather, Sir John, I, 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 when I was reading through them in Oxford, they really did seem to suggest that she had been alive um, for at least a couple of years by the time they were written. Um, so 1525 would be the latest date possible. But to me, it was very interesting that she was put in this will before um, another sister, which would suggest she was older. Uh, and then I began to look at other comments, um, you know, comments by Charles de Marillac, the, the French ambassador who went hunting with her in 1541. And he said in his, in his letter to Francois I that from his understanding, uh, the affair between Catherine and Francis Durham had stopped when she was about 18 years old. And it just seemed to me fundamentally improbable that someone who had known her um, would have guessed that she was about 18 in 1539, 1540, um, if she had been, you know, 14 or 15. It, that just seemed fundamentally unlikely. And finally, it was, um, it was, it was a goal of mine to try to end the um, splendid isolation in biographies, I call it, is when we kind of, we act as if our biographical subject is so special that they're not, you know, linked to the world they lived in. No man is an island. And I looked at the dates of birth for all the other girls who were admitted to Anne of Cleves' household in 1540. And all of them were born around 1522 or 1523. And it just seemed to me fundamentally improbable that there would be this crop of girls from a similar background um, that would have been born three years older than Catherine. Or, it, you know, it, it, all of it was cumulative, really, is what I'm trying to say. Comments, the, the ages of her contemporaries and the will of close family members led me to, to 1522, maybe 1523. But my money is on 1522. So uh, my Catherine would have, I think she was about 20 um, at a push when she was executed. I would say she was probably 19. Which is still, by today's standards, young. Yeah. And it was young for them. I mean, it, you know, it was it was not. There were comments made when she married the king that she, you know, she was young, um, and the fact that she was also very slender and you know quite petite gave her an appearance of being, you know, quite a, you know young. Someone said that she looked like you know. There's phrases used that say that she had childlike appearance or that she, you know, a bit of a doll. We might call it doll-like appearances probably how we'd say it today. Yes, very young. I mean, that's that. I fully agree. I think that's one of the tragedies, that there is almost... It, there's something about Catherine's story that there is this hideous disproportionality between what she did and what happened to her. Um, and that, I think, her youth is such an integral part of, of, of her tragedy. I want to talk more about that in a little bit. But one of the other things that I learned from your book was a lot more about her father, Edmund Howard. Yes. His background, obviously, he is the brother of Thomas Howard, 
who becomes the third Duke of Norfolk, and Elizabeth Howard, who was Anne Boleyn's mother. Yeah. Now, in your book, I got a kick out of this. We didn't hear very many positive things about Edmund Howard. And oh. there's a, a quote from your book that you say, debt seldom stimulates a compulsion towards honesty. <laughs> and I thought that was so fitting for Edmund Howard. Can you tell everybody maybe just briefly what his his troubles were? Sure. Well, I, you know, I, I, I'm laughing because a really good friend of mine, uh, Killam, who, you know, this would not be the kind of book he would usually read, but he's a good friend. Uh, and his favorite figure was Edmund Howard. Like he just said he couldn't stop laughing at, you know, the litany of mistakes that Ed, poor, poor Edmund. Um, well, yes, you know, he he was a younger son of the second Duke of Norfolk and brother of the third. And um, in his youth, apparently very courageous, he fought at the Battle of Flodden um, bravely, if incompetently. Um, and he was a celebrated jouster. And I think that was that was part of the problem, because um, during a series of jousts in 1511, he repeatedly unseated and defeated the young Henry VIII and didn't realize that this wasn't an honest competition and you, sh you shouldn't keep smashing the king to the ground off his horse. Uh, <laughs> and Henry VIII really began to nurture a deep, deep dislike for him. In fact, he actively sort of thwarted and frustrated Edmund's career. Um, he got a, a, a stipend, a minimal stipend from the royal household for his service in the wars against Scotland. Uh, and then he became a justice of the peace, which is sort of uh, someone in charge of, of local justice in Lambeth, um, where I'm nearly certain his his children were born. But he he spent, you know, he spent like an aristocrat, but he didn't have the income of one. So he was chronically in debt and was really at one point he had, you know, he was in charge of supporting justice, but he had to go into hiding from his from debt collectors. And eventually, uh, his niece Anne Boleyn got him a job. Um, as the Comptroller of Calais, and, and he moved and suffered, you know, from both physical and financial incontinence later in life, as one very funny letter to Lady Lyle makes clear. Um, you know, he says something about the fact that he did, you know, he um, be pissed his bed, and my wife hath sore beaten me for it. Um, so, yeah, there, he was a sort of tragic comedy of a figure. And I, I think, I sort of tentatively say it in the book, I think... It's very interesting to me that one of the recurring themes of Catherine's personality was this almost pathological aversion to humiliation and embarrassment. And I did wonder, was that, you know, was that in part shaped by the many humiliations her father endured? Yeah, yeah, he definitely went through a lot. One of the things that I took from your um, your section about him in the book was the fact that he kept using his Howard name as a reason why he couldn't get a job here or there. You know, I come from the prestigious Howard family. How can I have a job that's beneath our family status? And I always wondered, you know, like, is that, is that his scapegoat, his reason not to work? Is it real? Mm. Yeah, I mean, aristocratic, it, you have to bear in mind, Catherine of Aragon did it as well. I always try to caution people when they, they say, you know, she was living in poverty, listen to her letters. And I'm like, she was living in, in her version of poverty. You know, <laughs> right. aristocratic poverty is not the same thing. You know, um, see, he, he still had servants. We know there, um, I found some of his letters and he references servants uh, in them. So they certainly, they were not, they weren't, poor in the way that we, the majority of the population would conceive of poverty. Um, 
part of what uh, part of why the Howard excuse didn't work was not only was it a bit pathetic, but it also sort of unintentionally underlined his primary feeling, which was you have this surname. Um, and if you had any sort of skill or gumption, you would have been able to parlay that name into a successful career in an appropriate venue, like his brother William did, a very successful diplomat, um, and was later given his own title as a baron by uh, Queen Mary I. So actually, when he's, when he's you know, saying, I, I can't get a, a normal job, I think the general reaction was, well, you don't need to. If you if you could use what God gave you, i.e. this prestigious name, you shouldn't need to. Um, he couldn't, I mean, he couldn't win for losing. The poor guy was just, you know, it was, um, it was a, it was a, anticlimax of a life with Edmund Howard, I think. And that's, and there's a, there's a tragedy to that, you know, I think. <laughs> And then Catherine ends up um, living with her, uh, oh, refresh my memory, step-grandmother. Step-grandmother, yeah. It was the most cumbersome phrase to, to try and include in a paragraph, <laughs> step-grandmother. Um, can you, for those who are maybe less familiar with the time period and how things work, can you explain to everybody how she ended up in this dormitory lifestyle with other teenagers? Yeah, um, well, bedrooms were very, very rare. Um, and even in the most um, sort of exclusive and upper class residences, it was typical for children or extended members of the family to sleep in, yes, a dormitory. I mean, sort of not dissimilar to what would later become the norm in boarding schools. And she was she was sent to live with her step-grandmother, the Dowager Duchess of, of Norfolk, when Edmund moved to Calais. And it was a Catherine would have been about eight or nine years old when this happened. And it was a fairly it was a fairly common occurrence amongst the English elite at the time. Children were usually sent to complete at least part of their education in another's household. And we find that bizarre, and so did a lot of Europeans. They thought it was cold and quite unfeeling uh, as an English custom. The English justification for it was that you, the parents would inherently spoil or overindulge their own children. And so in order for them to get a good education to become functioning members of the elite themselves, they would be sent to the homes of, of friends or relatives. And with Edmund having to go across the channel to the English colony at Calais, it was the perfect time um, for Catherine to, to you know, undertake this part of her education, and I, her one of her brothers, uh, Henry, either went with her at the same time or not long afterwards. So it wasn't, you know, what I think people, if you're not sort of familiar with Catherine Howard lore, there's this very prevailing view that she, that the Victorians, when they wrote about her, really cultivated that she'd been shipped off to the home of this feckless, grand, indulgent uh, grandmother figure who sort of left her to be, you know, to be ignored and and run riot around the house. In fact, she, you know, she was um, treated with a great deal of respect and privilege in her, in her grandmother's household. And it was, you know, very clear that she was, you know, she was a member of this very prestigious family and, and all the other young wards who were sent there seemed to have deferred to her because she was, you know, the, the lady of the house's grandchild. So I think it was... Um, it maybe wasn't an idyllic childhood, but it was certainly by the standards of 99% of the population. She had a very privileged one. 
You mentioned education in there as well. And we know that Catherine could read and write. Do you have any idea what her education would have looked like? I mean, yes, sometimes with uh, that particular section of the book, I had to look at wider manuals um, because there, it, there are not the specifics. Uh, I think I could, I could hazard the guess that it was not as rigorous as Anne Boleyn's or maybe even Catherine Parr's because she, she doesn't see, like uh, Jane Seymour, Henry's third wife, Catherine Howard does not seem to have had a, a significant number uh, of what we would class as intellectual interest. That being said, there is a big leap from that to someone being stupid, which I think she is often portrayed as. Um, there was, there was, it was a fairly standard aristocratic female education, uh, except for we don't hear of her proficiency in other languages. It would be a bit unusual for her not to have been taught a little bit of French or Latin, but we know that she was um, an excellent dancer, um, very good at music, and that she, she, one of the things that really struck me, Rebecca, that I really try to stress in the book, because I don't think people associate it with her, is the number of compliments she received about her manners, that she had these exquisite uh, manners. And any time she was in public, she had, she was elegant, controlled, uh, very much, you know, a daughter of the house of hard. And when I looked at her edu standard education, the amount that manners factored into what aristocratic children were taught was extraordinary. I mean, everything from how they should, you know, how they should tear bread at a table, lift salt, move, point, stand, laugh. Everything was, go was governed by this. And I found textbooks from her lifetime for children that um, more or less said that the, the, good manners were a gift from God. And they said, they would use examples like how um, Gabriel the Archangel bowed before the Virgin Mary uh, when he appeared to her and said this was the beginning of courtesy. So it was, it mattered. And she, she learned those lessons very well. I mean, she was even on the day of her execution, note perfect in terms of her behavior. Well, undoubtedly her upbringing had a lot to, to do with that. As you said, and we talk about um, her education a bit, and I want to go back to her relationship with Mannix just briefly. Yes. And I'm curious to hear from you um, if there's anything in your research that surprised you about their relationship, so to speak. Uh, yes, I think I, actually when I reread the book, I wish I had stressed this more because I don't think I, I wish I put maybe a couple more sentences in. One of the things that, that surprised me is I think it started quite a bit later uh, than most people think. There's this people say 1536 all the time. I've said 1536 for the start of their relationship. But actually, there's no evidence whatsoever that it did start in 1536. And in fact, I would my research led me to believe it started and ended in 1538. It was very quick, um, a very brief affair that she she ended um, when, when she heard he'd been uh, boasting about their levels of physical intimacy. 
I also was surprised to find out that he was almost the same age as her. If, if he might actually have been the same age, and I am um, not much older than her. There's this suggestion that he groomed her, that he was sort of a paedophile. And what I found was that you know she was about sixteen, he was probably about seventeen or eighteen, maybe not a lot older, um, and he wasn't married yet, so he was a young man. And so the suggestion that it was uh, an, a, a relationship that, by our standards, would be pedophilic. Um, mercifully, I, I find there was mountains of evidence to contradict that. But it's important. Um, it was important for me not to then say that he was a good guy. Oh, let's completely exonerate him. That's not what I thought. I think he was a thoroughly unpleasant, um, predatory, boastful um, egotist. And when and I can fully understand. People have said she was heartless in the way she ended it. You know, he he used the most degrading language about you know her private parts and he boasted about that to another servant and when Catherine heard she understandably dropped him like hot coal um so yeah i mean that was that was uh i have to say i was relieved to find that the, the modern theory uh, about just how dark that relationship was um was not borne out by the evidence it, it would have been unbearably horrific had that been the case why was it such a big deal that Catherine had the past that she did prior to marrying Henry? Why was it a big deal that it that they kept it secret? Well, interestingly, it wasn't Mannix. I think you're right. There was a huge amount of um, you, you said such a big deal, and you're right. It, it that was the issue um, for the crime. And after she married uh, into the royal family, and it emerged that she had she had slept with someone before she became queen. It wasn't Mannix. I mean, Mannix wasn't um, wasn't executed or put on trial. It was Francis Durham who she um, who she allegedly was betrothed to before she broke it off to to go to court for the first time. The reason why it was it was emotionally wounding to Henry was that she hadn't been a virgin and that that made her sort of soiled goods by the horrible double standards of the 1540s. Um, but what was more significant was, and I, I, I think people are often a bit surprised that, that Francis Durham ended up being executed. He wasn't executed because he'd slept with her before. It was because he had joined her household staff after she became queen. And the king really believed that if they had been sleeping together before the marriage, Francis's determination to join her service after she became queen indicated a clear desire to uh, restart um, their sexual relationship. And thus, that was an intention to commit treason. So it was an emotional... Um, horror from Henry VIII that she, when he found out that she hadn't been a virgin, but also it it was a um, particularly brutal reading of the legal codes that said, you know, the intention to commit treason was enough to condemn you to death. So it, it was a mixture of, of, and that's how it became the, the horrible scandal that killed her. Gareth, if you could describe Catherine Howard in two words, Ooh. which would you choose? Ah, Oh, good question. Um, bright and lively, passionate. Some, I think that there was that there was such a quality of life to her. There was there there was some. I, I'm not perfectly describing that, but I think she she seemed so alive and and so full of promise and and energy. I ended up, uh, you know, liking her a lot more than I did at the start, and and I just 
it, it felt like a life snuffed out. And all too often in Tudor England, that was the case, wasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it just, I think it's so easy for us to say, why didn't they speak out? But I mean, they, they were living, the, the elite lived in kind of constant fear because under Henry, they were orbiting a tyrant. I mean, he, you know, he really was, even by the standards of the 16th century, an exponentially more terrifying uh, king than his than his father or his great uncle or his contemporaries. Um, you know, it was he was you know a mad, bad, and dangerous to know. I imagine the scandal um, of Catherine Howard's downfall and how gossip must have just ripped through all of England. You know, people talking about the king's wife. I'm going to transition a little here to your new book. When we talk about gossiping or headlines, some of the headlines that we look at from the 16th of April, 1912, Yes, we're talking about your new book. Some of the ones that I pulled this up on Google to see what I could find. And some of them are the Titanic sinks or the band played to the end. But then there were some weird, incorrect headlines, too, that said things yeah. like, you know, all Titanic passengers are saved, tra yeah. transferred to lifeboats at sea or Titanic sinking, no lives lost. So, OK, I just mentioned you had you had just written this book, but I had to get that in there because there is kind of a tie in between the two eras as far as how information was transferred to the pu public. So you recently, I'm going to let you get in here. <laughs> so you recently published a book called The Ship of Dreams, The Sinking of the Titanic and the End of the Edwardian Era. This book has already been named Book of the Year by the Times and Best History Book of 2019 by the Daily Telegraph. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. It feels, uh, it feels slightly surreal. Thank you very much. <laughs> I feel like the sinking of the Titanic was always such a tragic and unexpected event that we really can't stop wondering about it and the people. So mm -hmm. what, what inspired you to write this? Well, first, I, I ping between the Tudors and the Edwardians. Um, I go back and forward. So um, sometimes it's nice not to be reading Tudor handwriting for three years at a time. Um, it, I feel grateful for typewriters when I go back to the Edwardians. But the uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm from Belfast. I grew up hearing stories of the Titanic being built here. My uh, great-grandparents, who the Ship of Dreams is dedicated to. And... Um, I, I thought there was I, I thought there was more than just I mean I, I really wanted to create a book that you felt like you were on it and I could describe you know how did you uh, book the squash court you know what was the sleeping schedule like what was breakfast like but also to tie it into this sort of shattering uh, of the Edwardian era and it's really interesting you make the the, um, the information point because um obviously the edwardians got information more easily than the tudors but i think you're right to say that there was a similarity because a lot of people would say that the media coverage of the titanic was really the first sort of mass media coverage it was the first test of of what the media could cover um and so it was to me it was that night was a sort of a perfect symbol for the tensions that created the Edwardian era and ultimately destroyed it. Um, so uh, hopefully I, I had something new to say about the Titanic, like Catherine Howard, and, and people have been very, very kind about it. It's, it's still something that I think people are, are moved by and, and fascinated with. 
Well, I think you do such a good job at telling people's stories that I'm interested to read this book because you chose to follow six notable passengers. Is that right? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, six first class passengers, because I was really looking at sort of the end of the elite. Uh, I got the first, when I started it, I got the, uh, the first class passenger list and went through it and sort of divided the passengers up into sort of, I knew I wanted to do six. So I had an aristocrat, you know, um, American millionaire, um, celebrity, and the, the six different kinds really of money. And I picked passengers that correlated to them and then tried to narrow that down to passengers with interesting stories. So each person is sort of emblematic of a different kind of social class that existed in the 1910s. Um, and so on the one hand, I had the, the ship and the disaster I was researching and, and on the other hand, these six people and their families and that, and, and bringing them all together, you know, for these four and a half days on the largest ship in the world. And it, it was, it was, uh, part social history research, part detective story. And I just absolutely, I, I, it was such an honor to research them. Can you give us an example of who one of the passengers are? Uh, yeah, well, I, I had um, had the Countess of Rothes, who was the only really titled aristocrat on, on board. There was um, Sir Cosmo and Lady Duff Gordon, though technically strict rules of aristocracy, they don't count. Um, but the Countess of Rothes was uh, a Tory. Uh, she was a suffragette. She was a Red Cross nurse. Uh, she was a friend of the British royal family, a very generous um, patroness of charity. And she she was so inspirational to write about um, because she she was one of those people, I think, that I, you hope that those are the bits of the, your personality that would be re- revealed if you were in a moment of crisis. Because I think Marie Antoinette once said that adversity is shows the true self. Uh, and, you know, will it, will it reveal great strengths or will it reveal great weaknesses that you didn't know you had? And she... She did not feel the test of character that the Titanic Knight imposed upon her. She was she was a heroic midi. Um, I was very very honored to tell her story. How do you think things may have been different today had the Titanic not sunk? I don't know if it. I mean, I think perhaps a disaster like it might have happened eventually because you know they didn't the, the international ice patrol was created as a direct result of it um and it and it changed how ships moved through ice fields there was you know there was a lot of changes made to navigation and seamanship as a consequence of the titanic so i think in terms of of safety at sea had had she not happened it would have happened to one of them eventually um I think in general terms, I, I think it, we, first of all, wouldn't have this, this almost, it's become almost like a myth um, central to Western culture. But I wonder if perhaps certain things like the development of the media or um, changes in technology might have been slowed as a consequence of it. I think it also, it, it, it was an interesting example of um, shattering public faith in laws and due process and and um, the government knowing best, I think it really showed that actually the people in charge didn't always know best. And that, of course, has been one of the running tensions of the 20th century um, since then. So I think it's it, I think it shaped safety at sea and at people's mentalities, which is a, a tough one to quantify. But I think that was um, that was probably its most significant long term impact. 
I'm looking forward to reading this. Where can everybody, where can they find your book? Um, I, well, it's it's uh, it's out in America at the moment. Um, it was it came out in November, so you can find that on Barnes and Noble or Amazon um, or in any of your local independent bookstores. Um, the independent bookseller, booksellers of America very kindly um, named it one of their December reads, which is which is wonderful just to think of sort of cabal of uh, independent booksellers. And it's uh, it's out in the UK as well, and you can find it at Waterstones or Amazon or. Um, or any of the other big chains in the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland. Wonderful. Well, before we wrap up here, I have um, some of my fun questions I like to ask all of my guests. I'm going to start off with the one I ask everybody, and I probably already know the answer to this, but you might surprise me. Okay. Of the six wives of Henry VIII, who is your favorite? Anne Boleyn. No hesitation. (laughs) So many people love her. Oh, yes, I love her. Um... I do. I mean, I think I always trust a historian more if they say, look, I have, you know, this this character speaks a little bit more to me. It's when people say they're totally impartial that I think, well, you know, you can't be. Um, you can try to be honest about everyone, but you're going to admire certain figures more than others. It's very, very true. What is one thing that people might be surprised to learn about you? Um, oh, <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I think some people are quite dis- surprised to find out I'm Northern Irish. I think a lot of people think I'm English. Um, yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's probably the most obvious. <laughs> uh, do you recall the last Tudor-themed series or film you watched? Oh, it's been a while. I, I, I recently re-watched The Private Life of Henry VIII, which is from 1933. Um, oh, I, no, the, the, it's not a new one, but I re-watched... Um, Elizabeth R. with Glenda Jackson, which is oh, just, yeah. just extraordinary. That is what, wonderful. It's what a performance, absolutely. Now, if it were possible, if I was able to build you a time machine and you could safely return um, from whatever time you choose, what time in history would you choose to go back to? I probably would go back to the 1530s, the 1540s. I'd, I'd want to try and, and see them to, to Tudor England, certainly. There's so much happened during that time. I can't blame you. <laughs> no, I know. I'd also want to see, was I right? <laughs> you know, yeah. Now, you've been a wonderful guest. Thank you so much for being on the show. Can you tell all the listeners how they can find you on social media? Yeah, um, you can find me um, uh, on Facebook, uh, Gareth Russell, historian, author. Uh, I'm on uh, Twitter as Gareth. Uh, Russell one and, and on Instagram as well. So there are your three social media hubs. And he actually responds to questions. I try my best. Yeah. <laughs> Gareth, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you very much. And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. On the next episode, the first of 2020, I speak with author Caroline Angus Baker. We're going to talk about one of your favorites, Thomas Cromwell. If you don't want to miss an episode or any future episodes, be sure to subscribe to my podcast anywhere podcasts are available. Apple, Stitcher, Podbean, just a few examples. Intro and outro music called Folk Round by Kevin McLeod in Competech.com. Creative Commons license via filmmusic.io. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com.
Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.